Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. You know, I don't think that there is more of a cornerstone institution in any community more so than the local pub. And today's guest is Stephen Hunt, and he's going to reshape your perspective on the nearest watering hole after building his hospitality empire from a $400,000 investment to a valuation of over $50 million. His key to success was building an environment that appeals to all walks of life and acts as a centralized hub for the community. Now in the pub game, it's a story of growth via acquisition. And it's pretty obvious why, right? They can't just go and slap up a new pub on every second corner. But there are a lot of complexities around this strategy, which we're going to start unpacking in this episode. So come along and have a virtual beer with me while we chat to Stephen Hunt. Stephen, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thanks, Simon. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. Mate, it's my pleasure. I'm, uh, I've been very much looking forward to this chat. Um, obviously, we, we got introduced by a mutual contact, uh, Bernadette, who um, is a wonderful person. So, um, mate, for our listeners, maybe can I kick over to you? Maybe you could give us a little of your background, give people a little bit of a sense of who you are and, and kind of, you know, what led to us having this chat? Yeah, for sure. So, I'm the CEO of Hunt Hospitality International, which is... Uh, based on hospitality management. So we basically acquire hotels and that's the management of the hotels is what we're all about. Um, We cover a radius of about 500 kilometres. So we go from Newcastle and we finish in Coffs Harbour. And um, I started a fund up after many years of being in the industry and I sort of wanted to branch out. And I was in partnership with my family at one particular venue, and then I just thought there was more that I could do than just run the one pub. And prior to that, I'd had a bit of experience with um, with a group called the Independent Pub Group, and so they had twenty pubs across Australia, and that experience was fantastic. So when I set up my fund, I literally went to a meeting in Sydney, an investor meeting, and thought and looked at their information memorandum and looked at the structure, and then I spoke to my accountant and my lawyer and said. I think we can do something similar. Um, however, we need we want to have our own twist on it. You know, we, we want super funds to be able to invest. And so we sort of reinvented the wheel slightly and then kicked off the fund in 2015. And you know, I had 400 grand. I actually had a property in Sydney and I um, did really well out of a sale of that. And so I had 400 grand. And then I started the fund with the 400 grand and then now it's worth over 50 million bucks. So. The trajectory's been hard and fast. So, <laughs> yeah, and hair raising at times, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. The, the fundraising part's probably the hardest bit, and running the pubs is the easiest bit, even though it has its challenges. But having done it for a long time now, you sort of you've had the highs and lows, so you kind of have a better gauge on how to how to come back, like from COVID and things like that. So. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, so a couple of things spring to mind already just just from that is that, you know, one, you mentioned about being in business with family, and I'd like to unpack that in a second because I think that's really relevant and interesting to people who will be listening. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, like your entry into the pub world, did it start after you were working for, for other people and you got a sense of it or was there, was there some other sort of sense around this was a space you just enjoyed or liked or were interested in? Yeah, so I actually... Um really liked it before I first started working in the pub. 
and it's kind of retrospective that you actually look back and um, my f- parents had a, a barbecue area at home and they put it in when I was 15 uh, and then 16, 17, 18, we started having barbecues and parties at our house. And um, so I was already in the middle of the community then, like we had guys from the footy club, you know, we had the jocks, I was a bit of a jock back then. You know, we had the tech heads, some of the guys who were getting into computer science. We had the girls from the netball team and local community. And that was really the true start of, of hospitality for me. And then I got a job in the local pub. And I was really fortunate that the people I worked at, so I started, you know, washing plates and then worked my way up to pouring beers. And back in the day, you had to, you had a white shirt and a, and a bow tie. And... Um, so, you know, that was that was kind of fun. And all my mates would come into that pub because it wasn't far from home. And the experience I had with those guys was invaluable. I still use a lot of their systems now. But I was 18, you know. So at 18, you're like, oh, I'll just turn up and make some beer money, you know. I wasn't that, you know, I didn't know about it too much. But they were exceptional operators. They're probably up there at the time with the best operators in the country. And they were very innovative, like they had brought, uh, they go to the states and pick up ideas and bring them back and implement them into into the pub. So, and then it just kept rolling along, you know. So I went over to London and did that rite of passage and worked worked in pubs over there and had a great time. And then came back home and started studying hospitality. Um, and then many years later, that led on to a, a master's degree and uh, applied finance, which I don't recommend to anyone. Um, <laughs> It's a different level in, in you know, in ma- mathematics. Like I think I pretty much charmed my way through it. I got on really well with lecturers and I'd always end up with that magical 50%, you know. So, um, but it was hard work, but I learned a lot there too. So um, but the career sort of evolved and then obviously I enjoyed managing pubs and um, we bought our first pub in 1997, which is a family and I've been working at pubs at that stage for six years. And that was the first one that we owned independently. Yeah, right. So that was where, where, where was that pub? That was in Chippendale, Thurless Castle Hotel. Okay. So that's on, on Cleveland Street, not far from Sydney Uni. Yep, yep, gotcha. Very, very different crowd, I imagine, there compared to some of the sort of more country regional pubs. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, it had up there with the highest crime rate in the country. So we were just we boarded Redfern and, and at the and that's like in the late nineties. Um, unfortunately, it was quite a rough area. But um, the people I met there—that's probably the starting point. Or second reminder about involvement with the community, because all the people who visit the pub would always sort of warn you about people and places not to go, and you know they were really awesome. Yeah. I, I, I'm old enough to remember that time in the area. So it's, uh, yeah, and I've worked at a few pubs myself. So that's a story for another day. But <laughs> um, I, I'm interested, um, you talk about buying the first pub as a, you know, as a, with the family. Um, can you talk me through what, what did that look like? Because, you know, obviously, you know, they say going into business with family and friends and all that sort of stuff can have its challenges. Um, you know, what, what was it like for you guys? Yeah, it it was good, and the learning about like my family are pretty much all accountants, apart from a younger sister. So I'm one of five children, and mum's an accountant, dad's an accountant, uh, my oldest brother is, my sister's got a commerce uh, with accounting. Then my next brother does as well; they're still practicing. And then there was me who kind of went, I don't really want to, you know, be an accountant, despite the fact I have a lot of respect and a lot of arguments with accountants. And my younger sister got into works for Stockland. So she's created her own path as well. And so when we bought the pub, um, pretty much as licensee, it was up everything, the buck stopped with me. You know, the parents and myself had bought the pub and it was, and it was amazing because you just learn through certain failures and certain, uh, certain, certain wins. Like we paid 1.4 for it and sold it two years later for 2.1. Wow. Yep. There was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in that. And quite often coming from an accounting land, they couldn't understand what I was trying to do in pub land because they'd be looking at the P and L and going, you know, what's what's going on here? You're spending money on promotions. Um, so they were learning about running a pub 
And also I was learning about tax advice from them at the same time. So um, it was an interesting uh, sort of mix in the conversations, you know. Um, and Dad used to come in and, uh, you know, say day probably once a week. And in terms of CapEx, that was always run through the family. And, you know, it's family dynamics play a long part. Sometimes the history can of your family can actually be prohibitive because your parents know from when you're a kid, you know what I mean? And, uh, they kind of, those memories come up when you're making business decisions. Yeah. So, um, but also they're very forgiving when you make a mistake. It's interesting because we often talk about going into business with people and I know I've spoken to lots of people on this podcast um, about partnerships and family and friends and how that all starts and I'm, I'm just sort of curious and, and obviously don't want to sort of tread on anything that might be confidential or whatever but I, I, I am sort of curious about how that discussion starts you know like you, you know is it you find a pub and you throw it on the table at kitchen you know at the kitchen table over dinner or something and you know do, do you talk about a shareholders agreement do you how formal do you get right because I, I understand that all these relationships is a lot of history but where, where's the line there? Well, the formalities probably came in our second second pub. So the first one was it wasn't really formal. We had looked at 20 pubs before we bought it. So we had travelled all around Australia having a look and um, my father knew it was a, a solid investment. So we'd looked at P&Ls and gone through all that and funnily enough, I finished my first round of study on the Friday. We took over the next pub the following week so literally it was, you know, you've got to implement all these practices that you've learnt. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't too too formal. We lived in the terrace house next door with my brother. And initially he was awesome because he'd, he'd helped do, you know, do the tills and everything else. Like we were, there was only 10 employees. And, and so um, the good thing about, like I said, with the family, they could see that I was working really hard for the business. So... There weren't too many formalities about shareholder agreements and things like that. That came a lot later, you know. So that that came that yeah with the second acquisition. And even though we've been in in that one for a number of years, we basically had to have a management agreement. And sort of um, in the management agreement, like my family are pretty pretty hard negotiators, so I had to get a option in there to actually buy. So if we went to market, I had an option there to buy it. So um, to come up with twenty four and a half million bucks um, was was a challenge, but that's where the private equity sort of comes in. So yeah, interesting. That like that's a, so so intuitive. That's a big leap, right? You you know, I bought the first one one point four odd, or I think you said, and then sold for two point something. Um, like that's a massive leap. Like, did, did did you? Could you talk us through a little bit around that second acquisition and what that looked like? So. Um, after selling the first pub, and I had a few months off, and then I got a job with the Bayfield family, who are just fantastic people. They're just really, really nice people. Even from the outset, they said, "Why are you coming on board with us? Because you've managed your own business." And I just said, "Look, I'm, I'm here to learn as much as I possibly can." And they they took me on and, and were really good mentors. And then basically, we found the Kent Hotel in, in Newcastle. So it's it's twenty years now. So we've I've actually been managing that pub, managing that pub, um, and so we actually obviously in partnership with my family we bought that in two thousand and two. Now at the time uh, we paid eight point six million bucks for it, and that was a lot of money in the time. You know, people in Sydney were like, "Doesn't that get you half of Newcastle?" <laughs> but it was a good pub, and it had been a good pub, and obviously we did our DD on it, and it had been a good pub for years. So. We knew that we'd get in there and you, we, it's a tangible thing that you're buying. You know, there's no, um, you're not buying on hope. You're actually buying off something that was, was substantial. So um, for many years I ran, ran that pub and then I worked with the independent pub group and got that experience with multiple venues. And then I basically said to my family, look, I, I want to set up a fund and buy, you know, have some independence. And they're like, well, you can do that, but you still got to run Run the Kent Hotel, and knowing that I had that option, it was probably always the goal of them and myself to end up setting up a fund that could actually buy the pub out, and that that took a number of years. So 
Was it? Yeah, so that was probably, well, after the initial purchase, that was 2019, you know, so 17 years later. Wow. Um, I, I, I'm keen to get to that part of setting up the fund because I think that's a completely different world and different space, different approach. But but before I get to that, I'm, I'm just curious if you can help us also just explore this idea of how pubs slash hotels trade. Um, and, and just by way of context, I guess, um, you know, I don't think a lot of listeners necessarily are fay with, you know, business valuation as such, but but people often, and we talk on the show a lot about, you know, the standard valuation might be on a business might be a multiple of EBITDA or, you know, and if there's a property involved, maybe the property sold as a separate asset. And so there's lots of different ways, I guess, to value businesses and assets. And I'm just wondering, without going into the nitty gritty on individual deals, can you give us a flavour of what that looks like? Yeah, so with pubs, you, you generally have a valuer who uh, is on the bank panel. And depending on who you're borrowing with, some valuers are covered by all of the major four and then some are only allied to one or two. When I say allied, they've always got to be independent, so it's independent valuation. And when we bought the Kent, I believe the multiple uh, of the EBITDA, so earnings before interest tax and depreciation, amortisation, (laughs) let's just call it EBITDA, um, that probably at the time was about seven times. Wow. Okay. Okay. And and does that include the physical asset of the building and everything else? Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 lock stock. So that's everything. And then if you have a leasehold, uh, basically the multiple was was lower, but you actually don't own the bricks and mortar. Gotcha. And the longer the lease, the more uh, the higher the premium you pay. So and, and we have a couple of leases in our portfolio. But generally speaking, the yield on those, it works out to be higher than a freehold. So, so the payoff of the freehold is you own the bricks and mortar and you can on-sell it uh, whenever it suits you or whenever market conditions are good for you. Whereas when you've got a leasehold, you can still sell the leasehold. But generally speaking, the leasehold, you're tied in with the landlord and you can have you know a decrease in value. Or the other way you can do it is if you don't have a right to buy it, you can actually improve the profitability, which is good for you in terms of your, your return. However, that's just making the whole business worth a lot more. So you don't really get the full cream, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it makes a lot of sense. I guess that's a, a, it's a big call in terms of um, which direction you want to go and what strategy you might play. Um, out of interest, when you acquire these typical things, I mean, I, I see with a lot of businesses, owners typically will try to put the physical assets, the buildings and all the rest of it, perhaps even in a different name to the business, um, sometimes super funds, whatever. But I imagine, I don't know whether you employ that strategy, but I imagine in that scenario, you can then kind of play around with rents and different things and shift shift things around a little bit to maybe work your own financial strategies. Am I making yeah. sense there? Or? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's bang on. So basically... The general structure for everyone is, and, and obviously you've got to take good advice and because my parents are accountants, so we got the best way possible. So you have you have two companies with the same directors, really. You have a freehold owner as, as a company and then you have the leasehold as well. So obviously the freehold, uh, the leasehold pays rent back down to the freehold. And it's generally, it's pretty much a standard practice um, these days, and if you have a partnership, you basically would be buying into the freehold and the leasehold. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so, um, I, I, I do want to get onto that private equity piece, but I'll just, I guess, to sort of round out my thinking around pubs. Uh, you know, I imagine different pubs are, are, are different. So I don't know, maybe you can educate me a little bit here, but. I've seen in the press a lot of discussion around pokies and, you know, social impact and stuff like that versus your traditional food and beverage. And and I imagine with some of your hotels, you've got accommodation as well. Like, are you seeing a big shift in the kind of trends here? And are there things that are really, you know, I guess really important, I guess, uh, how different is the, the, the outlook when you look at pubs today versus maybe even 20 years ago? Well, I, sp- I think it's after COVID, I think, People getting more involved with their local community is really, really important for for the business owner and operator. So all sorts of – so I see it being, you know, 
I'd say this year might be a bit of a rocky road. If there's any more strands of of COVID, it'll be it'll be tough. But because we've been through that, you know, I think hospitality will thrive once we just get through. Most pandemics are, are three years, so we're into into year three, and I believe we'll we'll hold tight and we'll get through it. And all the financiers and all the stakeholders, you know, your um, suppliers, we're all on the same team, you know, so. But in terms of the structures of the businesses, see, we, we really target a good mix of trade. And so we, 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 we don't necessarily go for pubs all on their gaming. You know, if your pub turns over 100 grand a week, we sort of like a bit of a split with food, beverage and gaming of about 30% of each. Um, and then if you've got a bottle shop and accommodation, um, then, you know, that falls into the mix. Accommodation is, is really good for, for net as well. And you get some operators out there. That's how we sort of operate. And we sort of class it in as a, as a full group. So some of our pubs have got really strong accommodation. So we really focus on that. And some have extremely good F&B. So we really focus on that. And then some of them are probably, uh, we don't really have too many real gaming-centric pubs. Like we have pubs that go well with gaming, but they also have really solid bar. And one particular one has good gaming Really good bar, but not a great uh, revenue in food. Okay. And so moving towards the future, I think uh, I think gaming will be around for a while because we've got great systems in there to effectively help problem gamblers. So we've got a game care program through all of the hotels. So if we identify someone who's coming into the pub a bit too often, we, we generally stop them and say, look, here's... Um, here's is a chance for you to basically call this counselling service. And it puts the responsibility back on the individual. However, we like to step in there. Like no one wants to see any of their family, you know, and friends losing large amounts of money. It's not it's not what, what the publican's ethos is all about. You know, we're, we're there to get in the middle of the community and provide a, a really good, fair service. So I think the future will be like pubs now, there's not too many bad ones, you see. They've all been refreshed and uh, I think Justin Hems did a fantastic job in Sydney, not to name drop, but he revolutionised pubs in terms of the way that they'll fit it out and the rest of the industry has, we've got to improve and, and, and the pub industry is really improving so all the pubs have a better food offering, you know, they have all the craft beers, there's a revolution in that. Um, so we've everyone's had to raise their bar, and the important thing about that is for our sector is more people coming into the pubs. So they may not be drinkers, but they're coming in for a nice meal. So changing the face of people, you know, who come to our pubs, our customers. Yeah, nice. I, I, you know, I take a couple of things from that. I think it's you know your point there about gambling and stuff like that is is a good one. I think. You know, traditionally, the pubs have always been kind of that cornerstone institution of a community, right? It was the place where people met. It was a place where it was just a that common ground of collection. And, and pubs invariably are the ones out there sponsoring local footy teams and doing all those kind of good things to support the community. So I, I can see, and I, I appreciate the fact that that you know you guys are out there also looking at potential challenges and saying how do we how do we actually support these people because they're members of the community too. Um, so I think I think that's a that's a, a huge positive. But t- to your point there about Justin Hems and the way things have shifted, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, once upon a time, and I certainly did this as a young lad. You know, we'd go to the pub to have a few drinks. You know, and certainly at that age, having a couple of drinks was pretty high on the priority. But you know, certainly these days, um, and pandemic maybe has exacerbated this or you know accelerated this. Is that it's when I go out to a pub now, it's for an experience. <laughs> you know. I can I can sit at home and drink craft beer and fantastic whiskeys, but I, you know, I'm actually going to the place because I want to enjoy the atmosphere. I want to feel the vibe. I want to enjoy nice surroundings, um, and you know, I'm willing to pay for that because I've, it's, it's something different from them than what I'm getting in kind of regular life. Yeah, well, we we offer something every night in our pubs, a reason for people to go there, and that's to counter that people sitting at home. So you know, we've we've got a lot of the traditional things that we. You know, we run trivia nights and people come in and have a meal and, you know, they get together in groups. I, I, I think that's one of my favourite promotions. And then, you know, you have your pool nights where people are playing in a pool competition. Um, we have karaoke, good, good old karaoke. 
that still goes well for us. A lot of people don't do it anymore. So um, we keep doing it. So, you know, and that's, uh, that's, that's really good fun. But probably one of the biggest draw cards and most successful is the entertainment. So having your bands come on and, and even DJs. So we've sort of moved with the times. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the entertainment side of it, especially on the weekends, you know, that, that draws people in and we really focus on that and we all really focus on like all, I call it all the one percenters. So, you know, you've got to have all your light globes fixed. You've got to have all your tellies on. You've got to have uh, play to the right crowd. So you're not going to have Akadaka playing at 10 o'clock in the morning when, you know, your grey power are coming in for a cup of coffee. You know what I mean? You've, you've just got to, you've got to morph as the day moves on. And we love it in our late trading pubs because we get so many different sectors of the community. So, you know, it starts off with a lot of the old retired fellas who get up at four in the morning and, you know, they come to the pub at nine and have their middies of two years old. And then you get your lunch crowd in, which can be a lot of people in suits. Um, and then later in the afternoon you get your tradies and then you get people in for dinner again and then you get the people who come out for entertainment. Um, you know, so it's a great it's a great industry in that regard. But um, you're right, you've got to really work hard to get people from home into into the pub. Yeah, yeah, and I mentioned as you said before, you know, year three there'll be a little bit more coaxing, I think, going on. But uh, you know, I think I think we're definitely starting to see a shift in that. Well, or maybe that's just my perception of I just want to get the hell out of the house. But um, <laughs> it's uh, and and we're looking for new places to visit. So uh, so no, that's cool. Um. Maybe I can change gear here a little bit. Um, you know, we, I've been keen to talk to you about this whole, um, I guess, journey for you going down the private equity path. Um, you know, something we talk a lot about on this show and in just in general with our business exit advisory is this idea of growth via acquisition. And, and I think since the beginning of the pandemic, this as a topic has really taken off. Um, you know, a lot of people out there who haven't traditionally bought businesses uh, are weighing this up and saying, well, you know, how do we, how do we maybe instead of going out and bashing up the competitors and trying to, you know, putting price pressures on and stuff like that, maybe we should acquire somebody to grow. Um, and that's probably in a little more of a sort of traditional sense of the word. You know, you guys obviously can't just start a pub and, and you know, put, do a pop-up on the local corner. So acquisitions is going to be essential. But I, I think this theme of growth via acquisition is still, still relevant. So um, can you talk us through that journey a little bit and what it looked like? Yeah, so um, the first pub we bought in, into the fund, I had to go out there and, and I had to set up an IM information memorandum. I had to get all that right. I had to clear that with the, the lawyers who specialise in corporation law. And I had to have an accountant who was au fait with uh, setting up a fund. We had to pick the right style of fund. Um, and then so I had my 400 grand and I set up the IM and then I went out and, you know, spoke to potential investors. And probably at the time, the first acquisition we were looking at was 4.2 mil and it was actually my local pub. So I had to raise a bit over 2 million, you know, and then the rest we borrowed. And I went around and did, you know, had a lot of people who said, yeah, yeah we're in for sure. So I was like, oh, this is easy, you know. <laughs> when the, the checks, checks weren't coming in, I actually came down to the last day, which is a bit of a harrowing experience, um, where I had to raise a million bucks in in one day and, you know, technically in eight hours. Otherwise, uh, I was going to be sued to, you know, for a, for a pub to settle. Wow. And, and luckily, fortunately enough, I nailed all three investors uh, in the one day. So that was um, that was exciting but really draining and I wouldn't put myself in that position ever again, you know what I mean? So and then so that was year one. So we've got one pub worth four million bucks. And then the acquisition phase. So the investors were getting a cash return. We had it revalued at five within the first six months. So they said, Steve, can you go out there and, and buy more pubs? So um, we set up a new IM. I found uh, an operator who was getting a little bit tired. Um and, you know, he'd been in the pub for too long. So he started, he's getting a bit shop blind. He missed a few things. And that one was a really, really solid asset right in a really good area of Newcastle. And the other one was in Raymond Terrace. And there was, there was room to move with that one because 
that particular pub had three investors and they kind of lost a good operator to manage the day to day. Uh, it was a friend of mine who's now one of our investors. He rolled his money in, which was really good. So I think the fundraise for that one was, well, it was probably about twelve and a half million dollars. So, um, and we 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 got that one reasonably quickly. So it was harder to get the first one, and the second one. So fund went from four million bucks to twenty one million within within a year. And then to get further growth, because the assets had all grown in value, market conditions changed. And also probably the more technical points were you've got to have a really good uh, constitution that is favourable for everyone. It, our first constitution was flawed, so it basically meant 100% of our investors had to agree to certain spending over certain amounts and Thank goodness at the time I went back to the investors and said, look, this is you know, something, that's actually something we missed. And they've all voted in favour to change the, you know, from 100% vote down to, I think it was 55. Yeah, okay. And so that was fraught with danger. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. no that's, it's really interesting because I think, you know, if I take it back a, a step, you know, even though you went through some challenges with that first fund, People could be mistaken in thinking actually this is still a reasonably easy process, right? And I and I'm and I think there's always going to be a lot more complexity than we can even unpack on a show like this. But you know, raising a fund um, and and I'll, I'll defer to your kind of expertise and experience on this one. But I, you know, you obviously can't just lob up to anybody and say, do you want to chuck a, bit, a few bucks in our in our fund and invest, right? Like there's retail investors and wholesale investors, and there's different things around that. Um, I presume your fund was wholesale investors and therefore you have less regulation and complication. Is, is that, a, just broadly speaking, a fair comment? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So uh, wholesale investors, um, the threshold, I believe, is they have to have assets, net assets of over $2.1 million, I think it is. It might be 2.1 or... 2.5 or something, is. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then... Um, your retail investors are your mum and dad investors, but back to the wholesale, um, you could be on. Uh, I believe the other test is if you're on over two hundred and fifty grand a year and have been for a, a certain number of time. So I believe ASIC and the government see um, those investors as being more educated than the mum and dad, and it's really good because they offer that protection. So that stops you know the mum and dad investors for basically um, investing and losing you know their super funds or that you know. God forbid their house. Yes, no, exactly right. And I think too that that whole retail side, as you say, you need a proper prospectus and needs to go through ASIC and needs to be approved. It's an entirely different process of getting that approved into market um, than dealing on the wholesale front. Um, and I think too, and I imagine too, wholesale investors generally investing through corporate entities, which means that the you know it's it's usually a commercial deal as opposed to dealing with a with a a private resident as such. So so yeah, so I think. I think I, I just just wanted to give some insight into that part of it because it's not the sort of thing you just wake up one day and go, oh, I might just throw together a fund and see if I can raise, you know, five million bucks. <laughs> yeah, well, a, a lot of the work really you do before. So before you actually start, you've got to really educate yourself on it. And the constitution, getting that right, which we didn't to start with, but luckily we changed that. Getting the constitution, really, it's the rules of the game. And you can have that, you can have a shareholders agreement on top of that. So there's quite a few complexities to do with uh, setting it up, but it's all before, you know, and you have to research that and, and whether you actually eventually want to list is another layer of, you know, complexities. So yeah, it sounds a little bit like um, I, had a, I had a friend of mine who's in the building game and he, he was telling me that, you know, you said 30% of my work's done before we turn any soil. Um, and it sort of sounds like a kind of similar process there that a lot of that build up is is so critical. Um, can, can I ask, Stephen? Like, do, you know, you've started the fund, and, and then of course it's starting to grow and evolve. You're bringing in different investors. You know, it, it starts to change this 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 animal that it is. It's, it becomes its own kind of entity. I'm curious to know if there is much of a discussion around exit strategies for people, you know, do people come in with the intent of just wanting to make some money over a couple of years and then get out or is it a long haul or, you know, how do you approach that? Well, we've pretty much uh, in the time, so in the seven years, so 
first year there was less investors and then year two we brought in more. And then in year four, I believe, we brought in more investors as well. And a lot of them have stayed. So I think probably in that time, I can name it in one hand, I think it's been five investors who've exited. So we've been really lucky. And if someone wants to invest, we just say, can you give us a bit of notice and then go back to our existing investors? And a lot of our investors with their distributions just roll it over into the fund so they don't take it because they've seen such strong capital growth. So they're getting a return and then they're, they're basically the units, because we're a trust, they go up in value. So it's kind of like one of those ones where people park it and then just sort of enjoy the ride. And in terms of um, exit strategies for the pubs, we've been really lucky. So we, you know, probably bought for 4.2. We sold it for 6.5. And so we rolled the, uh, we give our investors a return to cover off on their tax. And then we rolled that over into a leasehold, which gives us a stronger yield. And then a year later, we sold one of our other assets which we paid 7.34 and we sold that for 12. So we've been really lucky in the exit and then we roll it over into something else. So much so that um, last, late last year during COVID, we actually had growth. So our fund went um, up to the, to, the, to the next level and we looked at an asset in Harrington, which Harrington's a beautiful spot on uh, sort of mid-north coast of New South Wales. And, there was a property there which is uh, three quarters of an acre, car parking, really good mix of trade, had a bit of room to move, which is right on the water. So the actual asset value is worth so much without the business within. And so we, we sold uh, an asset to get that, which was one that we bought for 8.3 and sold for 16 mil. So the fund's been growing um, gradually, so the investors have been quite happy. And we sort of... You know, I didn't realise it at the time, but we've bought and sold quite a few pubs over the years and it's almost like you're a pub flipper, but we never, we always had the, the ability to exit from each asset and as soon as we got capital growth and reasonable capital growth and we maxed out without spending a lot on capital expenditure, we sort of would fish around in the market and we've got great relationships with all the pub brokers and then we go, okay, we'll get to a figure and then once we get to that, we'll, we'll sort of on sell. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And and so when you go out to particular investors, and and once again, if, you know, I don't want to tread on anything that might be confidential here, but do, when you talk to investors, do you do you have a typical sort of target return that you talk to people about? Absolutely. So we have to put that in our uh, IMs. So we have to say the targeted return. And since inception, our basic return has probably been ten percent. Um. That's cash return, and some of that's franked. So for those people out there who don't know, franked is basically we pay tax at the company level, so then they pay less tax. And so that then bolsters up the return. You know, that then makes the return worth a lot more. Um, but we we target 7.5% and just say, look, that's pretty much the bare bones, and we, we can't guarantee it just because of things like COVID. But... Um, yeah, generally speaking, we've been really fortunate. And we sort of, we buy assets that um, where we generally see the operator, where we can see upside and we see an operator who's probably a bit tired and getting towards the end of their career. And then we can see what we can add to it, you know, in terms of initial growth. And the bigger we get, the better buying power we have. So we've got, we've got really good relationships with our stakeholders. Um, so that pretty much adds to the bottom line straight away. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, I have another quick question on exiting, if you don't mind. It's just because I have a certainly I have a lot of clients that come to us, you know, once again at Exit Advisory, saying I've got a business partner that wants to exit, and they're trying to work out options and solutions. And you know, I imagine your fund is probably a little bit more, um, I guess, organised and structured in this way because it's designed slightly different. But I think once again, the principles are similar. Um, so if you have an investor that comes along and says they want to exit, t- typically, like, what, how do you handle that process for them? Um, so first thing we do is, is we can look at buybacks as well. So if we're, if we're cashed up, we can actually buy them out through the fund, which most investors enjoy because you decrease the number of investors and the return 
automatically goes up depending on on their proportion of of ownership. Um, in terms of buying out a business partner, so we, we're, we're kind of lucky with that. Then that's stage one. Stage two is we go back to um, the the group of investors and say who wants to um, effectively buy the partner out. Something we've explored but we actually haven't progressed with is a secondary market. So this is really quite interesting because you can actually set up a market where the investors, that's only the investors, can buy from each other. And so they do like an interspecies transfer. So they negotiate the price amongst themselves. And so we haven't actually pulled the trigger on that one, but it's something that we're looking at in the future. And so that adds liquidity to the fund. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we can reinvest in that, and it's kind of a really fair way to do it. And then, you know, if investors want to get out quickly, they can they can do that quite quickly. Yeah, and I think too, I imagine that by by um, having that kind of framework, you probably take some of the potential heat out of the discussions because, you know, there is a methodology that people generally use. There's a, you know, it's been done before and there's, there's examples, right? The, the, the trail's been beaten down already. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it, it yeah, it's it's just good to have procedures, you know, for for pretty much everything we do in the fund, even even from day to day management. Because I, I still love to pour a beer and have a chat to my locals. Because originally, why I was attracted to it, but for everything we have policies and procedures. Even like we've created a, an app, internal app that we use to train all the staff up. Um, so they just sort of log in and they get trained on making and pouring a beer and. Um, so yeah, we're we're very sort of process driven. However, with our management, we like to them to have a lot of freedom. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, so so without kind of sharing the eleven, you know, secret eleven herbs and spices here. I mean, what what does the future look like? Where where do you where do you see things going? Um, we'll probably bunker down for a little while. There's a couple of <laughs> there's a couple of assets we're looking at at the moment. So um, the way I look at it is, is as long as step one for me is to Look after my initial, uh, you know, unit holders, and probably one reason why they like that is, and I, it's a bit self-soothing because I'm the biggest unit holder. <laughs> so, you know, if they know I'm working hard for myself, they're sort of happy with it. So we've got two potential businesses we're looking for at the minute, and we're also really exploring the vertical integration. So. I had to look it up because I thought, isn't that just horizontal integration? But it's vertical. Um, I still don't know why, but and in looking at buying a brewery. Yes, okay. So effectively, you know, we'd, we'd buy the brewery and then basically um, we'd sell obviously all those products. And it's not just because of that that we like the brewery. It's also part of our education of, of our existing team. So what we want is for you to come into the pub and for our staff, whether they're 18 or 30, to be able to sell you a product that they know a lot about. So, for example, if you like an IPA and someone else just wants a sort of extra dry, our team will be educated. But further than just that easy sort of education, they go to the brewery, they learn all about it, and then effectively they know all about the brewing process. So when they come back, they're far more educated than just the 18-year-old who's left school and pours a beer and they slops everywhere. And also the brewery component we're looking at has its own uh, restaurant as well. So that will be almost self-sufficient. So that's making money on the side and then we've got the training and then we're able to sell sell the beers and we've got uh, in our pubs. We've also got the marketing component, which will get us growth. So there's a lot of positives in that in that vertical integration, especially with a brewery and, and or distillery. I haven't, I've explored that before, but I'm sort of more interested in the brewing part. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, vertical integration gives you leverage and, and you know, that can be a very, very smart move. Uh, but I also think, too, just from, a, from an employee perspective, yeah, you've got a story to tell. Like it's a bit, a bit like GE were famous for this, right? Like they would bring people into a division and go, you're not staying in there for longer than two years. We want you to move around. We want you to go into different divisions. We want you to learn. And I think if you can bring people up and give them somewhat a more varied career, you're more likely to hang on to good people. But it's, it, I think it's a great story that people will want to be a part of. Well, we, we take the philosophy that I want my general managers and my executive chefs, chefs for each venue, 
to know as much as possible about the business. So each week uh, we have a very humble Stevens report um, and that covers all of the sales and the cost of goods and the wage percentages week on, week out, comparing to last year's. And so they go through and analyse that. They look at the GPs and then they look at the wage percentages and they, they do a very simple report for us saying, okay, Steve, there's there's been like bar sales this week are awesome, but we had a function and we had a home game for the local rugby club. And then they might say, oh, the wages are a bit high because we had three people on annual leave. And so the more they know, the better it is for the business because I get this simple report and I obviously look at them and I look at their report and I kind of go, I need to educate that person more. And so even if they leave um, my business and they know more about it than they did previously, uh, I'm not too worried about that because I believe if you don't do that from the outset, then you're going to have to spend more time. So, you know, looking through those figures and, um, yeah, we've, we've got an ops director now and a CFO and we sort of built that all chart and a lot of those guys work with the team and, and yeah, it's more educated they are, the better it is for us. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're, you're, you're answering that age-old question of how do we get employees to act more like owners? Well, you know, you can't get, get them to even think like owners if you don't share information with them and start bringing them up the curve. So, you know, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you can get, um, we've got an employee uh, share scheme. So a few of our employees are involved in that. And, and basically that means we, we sort of give them a, a large volume of shares and then they effectively pay it off with the profit that they make from that. And there's good leave and bad leave provisions in that. So that covers us on, you know, having to worry about that in the future. You can also get buy-in from your team in terms of uh, incentives and bonuses. So if they don't actually have the money to buy in, and because we're wholesale and sophisticated investors, a lot of them won't uh, pass that test. So take the money component out and look at their weekly incentives and all of a sudden they're making more money. And then the third one is if you don't actually want to pay out uh, that money from the business as well, which I, I believe works really well for us, is just the buy-in with decisions. So when we're looking at marketing or we're looking at new promotions, if you get your team involved, they'll sell it better than you because they're on the floor with, with, with the customers. So those three things I think are really important for people to have buying for your business and to provide really good customer service. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, another interesting concept. You know, I, I had a chap on, um, on our podcast earlier who his business specialises in what they call participatory budgeting. So literally getting an allocation of funds in a business and pulling together key people with different areas of a business and saying, you know, you know your area better than anyone else. How do you think we should be spending money or what do you think is the priority for the business going forward? Um, and they're saying not only do they get a better, more efficient allocation of funds, but the buy-in from those people goes through the roof. Um, and so it's, it's just fascinating. I mean, that sort of stuff was not around, certainly when I was coming up through sort of junior ranks in companies like, you know, you were a kind of a bit of a pleb and you had to kind of grind your way out before anyone would take you seriously. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just interesting to see how management systems and methodologies are changing. Yeah, I believe it's probably been, uh, it's a bit of an innovation that's come from the more, the bigger corporations. And then that's sort of filtered across to hospitality and different businesses. Yeah. And, you know, the world's changing now. So there's less control and command management. It's more, you know, like I said, getting people involved in the business and rewarding them for it. Yeah. 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 It makes a lot of sense. Um, Stephen, I could talk to you all day about this sort of stuff. I'm fascinated by it. But, of course, I understand you're busy and you've probably got other things to run to. But um for, for those who want to know more, though, um, you've, you've written a book, which will be out soon. Yeah, so 1st of March is the launch. So it's called Find, Build and Sell. So it effectively covers a lot of my career and, and what to do and what not to do. And it's really geared for anyone who wants to improve their existing condition or their position. So it can be used for you know a bar manager who wants to own their own business or a chef. It also can be used for someone who's a barman who wants to step up. And then it goes into more detail for business owners 
to actually go to the next level and to start their own fund. So it's it's a book that's based on my experiences and, like I said, some good and some very interesting um, circumstances. Um, but, yeah, it's a book that anyone can read and they can pick it up and, you know, read it and then come back to it. And after each chapter there's a, a summary. It's a bit like those uh, cheap books you used to have at, at uh, uni or whatever or it gave a summary of the book because you couldn't be bothered reading it. So <laughs> there's those points in there that make it really easy for people to read. Yeah, awesome. That's fantastic. Um, well, it sounds like an amazing read. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to having a look at it myself. Um, for those listening, we will put some links to the book so that you can go online and, and buy it yourself. Um, and um, Stephen, out, outside of the book, are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? Absolutely. Yeah, I, get, I do a lot on LinkedIn. And so um, either you can contact me through that or um, just through my normal uh, email address is fine. So I'll give that to you to send out. And, yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, have a chat and I can put you onto my team or I'll, I'll talk to you myself. No, look, that'd be great. And and as we always say on the show, if you do reach out to Stephen on LinkedIn or whereabouts, just maybe just let him know that you heard him on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast so that he has a little bit of context um, as to why maybe you're reaching out. So, um, Stephen, um, mate, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. And, and you know, I'm, I'm really grateful of you sharing your story and sharing your insights. I know, I know people will get a lot out of this. So, um, yeah, really appreciative. No worries. Thanks very much, Simon. Pleasure indeed. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.